the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The problem comes when we forget or choose to forget what really matters, that we're not of this world, and that there's something bigger, better, and permanent that we are a part of, we belong to. It is us. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. It's challenging to keep the same level of commitment to God and service when you are married as you had when you are or were single. Now, if you choose to marry or have chosen to marry, you must keep in mind, as I've mentioned earlier and alluded to, your romantic love is not a forever love. There is a word in the Greek for romantic love, and it is not the word agape. In fact, that word is not found in the New Testament. It is a temporary love, romantic love, which will be replaced with an even greater eternal love, perfect love. And as wonderful as it is, marriage is transient. Your relationship with the Lord, however, is forever. It cannot be broken here on earth, and it will last for eternity. And with this, you could add any relationship, not just with your spouse, but with your parents, with your children, with your best friend. We cannot let any relationship pull us away from our commitment to the Lord. You need to be careful, then, that you do not sacrifice worship in pursuit of marriage, and when you are married, not to sacrifice service and worship for your spouse's happiness or even a happy marriage. Paul goes on in verse 30 to give us a second and third temporal aspect of the world. He says, And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. These are two separate, obviously, but what he's talking about in both is emotions. Weeping here is speaking of mourning. Mourning is of this world, because in eternity there will be no mourning, M-O-U-R-N. There will be no mourning in eternity because there will be nothing to mourn for. What do we as Christians primarily mourn over? Death and sin. Those will not exist in eternity. And Paul also says that we are not to be overly consumed with rejoicing, because that too is only in this world. So, Mourning, we understand, is of this world, but no rejoicing in eternity, at least not the way that we know it. I mean, think about it. Hey, how you doing? Are you sad or are you joyful? We see it in this world as a contrast to mourning. Joyfulness, rejoicing, is seen as a height of positive emotions in this world. But in eternity, there will be no contrast since our very existence 
will be a state of eternal joy. So to tell us to rejoice in eternity is like telling us to have blood in our veins while we are on earth. You don't have to say that. It's a given. If you exist, that is true of you. And just like blood in our veins now, rejoicing in eternity, it's a given for existence. It is existence. It just is. And that's what Paul is saying here. But more specifically, he is reminding us about the dangers of emotions. Paul is not calling for an end to mourning or joy on earth. These things are commanded in Scripture, especially in regard to the things of the Lord, mourning over sin, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and weeping with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. What Paul is saying is that emotions have their place, but they must be kept in that place. Let me put it this way. Neither laughter nor tears are the final word in your life, in your existence, in your decisions. Emotions are a servant to the Word of God and to biblical living. They are not to control it. We cannot let any human emotion become excessive or out of control. Despite what you may feel or how they have dictated your behavior in the past, your emotions are more controllable than you think. And I think a lot of times people think they can't control their emotions, and so they just sit back and they let their emotions control them. We cannot let that be. Again, the point is that these types of things are of the world, and they can distract us, dissuade us, pull us away from our focus on what is eternal. They can keep us from what is truly important, or in their proper place, they can be an aid to helping us worship and focus on that which is eternal and truly important. And so, friends, let's not be so emotional that we are controlled by our emotions. Rather, we are to control our emotions. Overly emotional people can often lack discernment because they feel something is right so strongly that for them it actually is right. And so they don't defer to what the Bible says is right. Emotions are temporary. And I don't mean in Paul's, how Paul is saying that emotions are temporary because the world is passing away. Even in your life, your great happiness or sadness, those are temporary. They're for a few moments, a few days. But the Bible is right all the time. It never changes. It is the rock. You know, being extra emotional can even sometimes lead to a greater commitment to ministry. But again, the problem is that once the emotion is gone, so is the ministry. Be careful. On the flip side, biblical love doesn't allow us to be emotionless, indifferent, or calloused. But biblical love also doesn't allow us to be controlled by our emotions or let them run amok. Being highly emotional is distinct from and actually often contrary to biblical agape love. Now, everyone is different. We all have certain things that pull on our heartstrings more than others, more than other people, things that happen to us or things that we witness in others that make us sad or joyful because of our own personal experiences and preferences. But how these things make you feel does not alter reality, and reality is that God is what matters and should be our greatest joy or our greatest mourning when we sin against Him. 
let me give you another gauge as I did with the last point. Oftentimes, a personal success or a financial windfall, a promotion at work, even a physical purchase can bring us greater joy than a spiritual victory. Similarly, a friend's breakup or the loss of a job or an unmet expectation can bring us greater mourning than our own sin or the sin of the world around us. And sometimes in this day and age, even when we do find joy in spiritual victories or mourning over sin, we don't truly have the right perspective unless we somehow feed our emotions because we can post about that victory on social media. Such things should not be. When such things happen, then you know that your emotions are out of alignment with the Lord and what the Lord has designed for you. God gave you emotions. There's a way to use them. As Christians, we must be careful. Even when we give God the credit for good things that happen, we can be more controlled by our emotions than biblical discernment, spiritual priorities, or desire to glorify Him. Emotions are temporal. Fourthly, we've seen our spouse, we've seen weeping and rejoicing, and now our possessions and purchases. Look at the end of verse 30. And those who buy as though they did not possess. Categorizing the first three as of this world might have been surprising to you, marriage, emotions, but this should not surprise you at all. We are all very aware that physical possessions and money are the epitome of that which is worldly. They cause the most problems in terms of our worldliness and our temptations and our rejection of ministry. Again, we have to buy things. We are expected to buy things. But Paul says we are not to buy things to possess them. What does that mean? It means all possessions are to be seen as what they are, things that the Lord has temporarily loaned us. Shopping is not life, and what you own does not, or at least should not, define you. We should not be consumed with our consuming. Friends, stop trying to keep up with everyone else or using your, your possessions to impress the world. Nothing we buy, no matter how expensive or even sentimental, can become our preoccupation. They are not to control you, just like marriage, just like emotions. For example, if I can be very practical, you want to buy something nice, a nice car. That's great. Praise God. Understand it's on loan from Him. But then when you are controlled by it, it's when you spend two hours every other week waxing, washing, detailing, time that you could otherwise be spending with your family or serving others. Or you spend hours online or at the mall buying, then matching, then cleaning, then taking care of, then studying the latest trends and color schemes for your clothing. Christians, it's too much. We don't have time for that. We are eternal people. Too many, too many Christians are more concerned about their bank accounts, their cars, their houses, and their clothes than their spirituality. As a pastor, how how many marriages have I seen men try to fix by buying more stuff for their wives rather than leading, rebuking, encouraging, only to see that marriage go from bad to worse, but hey, at least she's happy now, and then we go back to the temporality of rejoicing. 
according to Scripture, there is nothing that gives you a greater glimpse of your heart than how you view money and possessions. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, from the lips of Jesus Christ Himself, He says how you view possessions is directly connected to how great the darkness is in your heart or full of light. I want to move on because the last, the fifth one is closely connected to it in verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. This is taking full advantage of the world and all it has to offer using every circumstance to gain the greatest worldly advantage, whether it's a, a, what you would deem a happy marriage, whether it's a nicer house, whether it's possessions, whether it's happiness, just using the world to the greatest worldly advantage and success. Pleasure is a really good word for what Paul's talking about here. Not necessarily immoral pleasures or even extravagant pleasures, but still worldly, when we live for these things, you know this, not just in watching the wealthy around us, but in your own life, when you live for these things, it's never enough. That super nice car in a couple years just doesn't seem nice anymore. There's new models. There's new companies. We always want more, more vacation, more time off, earlier retirement, nicer home, nicer car, nicer job, nicer stuff. All so we can enjoy this life while we neglect the things of the Lord. And what Paul is commanding us is to avoid becoming so absorbed with the world that it becomes everything to us. To put it another way, for the Christian, to enjoy the world is one thing, to be enmeshed in it is sin. To enjoy the world is one thing. To be enmeshed in it is sin. Martin Luther warned us to, I quote, not sink too deeply into it, the world, either with love and desire or suffering and boredom, but should rather behave like guests on earth, using everything for a short time because of need. In other words, friends, do not let anything in the world occupy your full attention. To be sure, we are to use the world. Marriage, tears, joys, purchases. But we cannot let them interfere with our first love. Whenever you go too far with any of these things and the related things that maybe have popped up in your mind as we've gone through this passage... You let them reach into your spiritual life, your spiritual heart, and start chipping away at it, if not just strangle it completely. Use the things of the world, but understand that they are short-lived and are not of eternity, just as this world is, just as your physical body is. Don't hold on to the world. The Gospels tell us that when Christ comes again, He will catch people off guard because they are distracted with eating and drinking, marrying, buying, selling, working, and building, just like in the days of Noah. We know how it ended for them. They're so focused on the world and not on His return that they're shocked. And I would imagine some even slightly disappointed that He has come. You heard me say it before. 
We need to get out of the mindset, yes, Lord, come again, but just until I, but just let me get that. You know what helps us not be among those who will be surprised is what the focus of the whole passage is. The crux of the whole passage is the end of verse 31. The form of this world is passing away. This includes marriage. This includes pleasure. This includes food and property and clothing and emotions and everything else we've talked about. So as those who belong not to what is passing away, but to that which is eternal, focus, commit, pursue the things which are eternal. None of these five things that Paul's listed and none of the things that, that, that Jesus said people will be busy doing when he comes again are bad in and of themselves. Again, they are all used by God for His glory and have a place in the Christian life. You have to buy things or you will die. They're all part of His gracious provision. The problem comes when we forget or choose to forget what really matters, that we're not of this world, and that there's something bigger, better, and permanent that we are a part of, we belong to. It is us. And we are to focus on that thing, those things, especially because we are living in the final days of the world. You don't decide to cook a roast when the Uber is on its way to take you to the airport for your vacation. You're cleaning. You're putting things away. You're throwing away leftovers. You're done with the past so you can get in that car and go. Paul's not saying that the end is tomorrow or even in this century. Maybe not even in this millennium. A lot of theologians believe that Paul thought Christ would return in his lifetime with an understanding that even if he didn't, Paul had to be prepared. And that's the lesson for us. Because the end time, which we are in, has broken into the present and requires us to reevaluate all that we do in this world. This world that is in its final chapter, its last legs, its end. Three days ago, people finally were able to kick to the curb a year that they disliked, hoping for a better 2021. Politics, movements, riots, deaths, COVID. We're three days in and nothing has changed. Vaccine didn't overnight on New Year's Day have millions of more available and shipped to every hospital. COVID is not gone. Masks are still worn. Politics and politicians are still absolutely self-centered and selfish. Now, I get it. This is a gracious gift of the Lord that we have ways to measure our days. But when the world looks at 2020 or 2021, and in 2022, I'm sure many will be saying the same thing. Done with 2021. Finally, 2022. What a horrible year. It's because that's all they have. They go day by day, week by week, year by year. They're lost in the trees and they don't even see or understand the forest. We get it. We don't live in this year. We live in an age and it is an age of the end. Christ has come and He is coming again. Live like it. I used to live in a country called Albania, as you know. And uh, I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone that there's no direct flight from Tirana, Albania to the United States. Not a huge tourist spot. And so there would be at least one layover, sometimes another layover in the U.S. So we would fly from Albania, uh, depending on the airline, Italy or the U.K. Uh, or Austria. I remember 
This was before I was married, and so I was single, and already I was exhausted before the trip began. I won't even get into what the experience at the Albanian airport is like. It's uh, interesting. And so I got off of this plane, and I would imagine most of you have flown. You get off the plane onto the jetway, which is that moving tunnel that takes you into the airport. And generally in the U.S., at least I believe every airport I've ever flown into in the U.S., which is probably half a dozen different ones or so, you walk out, and right as you walk out, there's the desk, there's the people waiting to get on the flight as soon as you get off, and right over there is a Starbucks and a sandwich shop or whatever. Not so in these European airports, especially where there are layovers, these kind of commuter airports. You get off the jetway, and there's nobody there except for the people leaving your plane. And I would get off the plane. I remember one time, and already I'm tired, so I'm not thinking straight. I get off the plane. There's nobody there. There's a glass wall, and there's a ton of seats. They're empty because it's just uh, another gate, but there's no flight, and so it's empty. And so I'm standing there, and there's a tunnel this way or a hallway this way, and there's a hallway this way with no people, empty seats, no restaurants, nothing to tell me which path to take, except for one of those signs, those large screens. I don't know the official name where they list all the flights. And there's only so many flights, let's say 10 flights that they can list at a time. Mine's not on there. And each, each flight, it'll tell you which gate to go to. And so I would know, choose this way or this way. And I have no idea where they go. So I'm a little scared because I had enough experience at that time to know that if I pick the wrong way, it's not like the U.S. where it's just like, now you've got to walk a long way to get to the other gate. You can't get back. You're done. You have to go through immigration and all this stuff and maybe even need a visa to leave the airport and come back in. And so I waited. Next 10 flights not on there. And I waited. Next 10 flights, not on there. And I'm looking at the times. All of these flights are in 20 minutes, an hour. And then finally, back to the first screen. And so I'm sitting there. I have no idea what to do. Even the flight attendants and the pilot have already gone. There's nobody but me. And the problem was that my flight was too far in advance. So they didn't even bother putting it on the screen yet. And so I didn't know what to do. I was a foreigner. This wasn't my final destination. And there was no indication of what I was supposed to do. With the coming and birth of Jesus Christ, our flight is on the board. We know where to go. We know what to do. So stop standing at the end of the jetway enjoying that three-foot circle of space when all you have to do is follow the instructions, go down that path, and live a life that you are supposed to live. It's on the board. The end of days has begun. We need to live and do the way God has told us. Live in light of eternity. So whether it's marriage, whether it's weeping, whether it's rejoicing, whether it's buying or any other usage of the world, your life as a Christian should never 
be identified with even the nearest and dearest of worldly experiences regardless of how profound and legitimate they may be. Live for today only in a way that makes you live fully for the future. Recognize the times and have the right relationship with the temporal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us and allowing us to be born in a time where we're not wondering when the Messiah has come, but he has come. We know exactly the time that we are living in. We have been given so much instruction in how to live. And so help us, Father, to not be enmeshed with the things of the world, even things like our marriages and our emotions. Help us to use all of these things in a controlled manner, in a way that honors you, always keeping an eternal perspective. Lord, thank you for the privileges you have given us in our singleness, in our marriages, in our emotions, in our possessions, in our homes, our cars, our clothes, our toys, whatever it may be. But guard us against using these gifts in a way that dishonors you or pulls us away from our first love, our first priority. Help us to be people who live in light of eternity. Teach us how to do that in each and every one of our specific situations. Help us to fear you and not man. In Jesus' name. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.